the latest of these podcasts, I've decided to take a look at one of the major sporting events, the two weeks that have come to be called the greatest show on earth, the Olympic Games. Before the first Olympic Games, most of the city-states of Greece had been fighting each other in a protracted civil war. In the end, the fighting became more of a habit, and people lost sight of the reason why so much blood had been shed. There is an account from the time that talks of an agreement in the city-state of Ellis to embark on a truce, thus allowing athletes to travel to take part in the Olympic Games, and continue the battle, but on the sports field. So it was that the ancient Olympic Games was held in honour of Zeus, King of the Gods, and were part of a five-day festival held every four years at Olympia, a valley near the city of Ellis, where the ceasefire had been drawn up. As far as we can tell, the first Olympic Games were held in about 776 BC, and it included an event that saw athletes engaged in a short sprint from one end of the stadium to another. It would seem that slowly over the years more events were added, until there were four days of many differing competitions, each of them glorifying the physical and spiritual purity of the participants. Spectators arrived from all over Greece to watch the festivities, and they had to pitch their tents in and around the stadium, or just sleep on the outside. The whole thing seems a little bit like Glastonbury Festival, but without the mud. As far as athletes at the Games, only men, boys and unmarried girls were allowed to attend the Olympic Games. Women caught sneaking in faced a severe punishment, though I couldn't find no record of what horror actually awaited them. One of the most popular contests was held at the fourth day of the Games, and this was called Pancration Wrestling, a sort of no-holds-barred free-for-all, described as a sort of wrestling with hardly any rules. The only activities frowned on were biting and eye-gouging, which were officially banned. However, some of the contestants did occasionally attempt to get away with it. This may seem extremely violent to us now, but it was very popular among the ancient Greeks, who, it must be remembered, lived with a very different set of a moral code, not better or worse than ours, just different. As we noticed already, the games were closely connected to the worship of the gods, goddesses and Greek heroes, and if these four yearly games brought glory to the gods, then all was well. There are a few tales of the great athletes of those times. There is a myth that mentions somebody called Oxylos, which sounds remarkably like a soap powder, and he is sometimes credited as being the founder of the original games. The later, more popular Greek games were reinstalled by his relative, one Lyftos, the king of Elis. The ancient games eventually declined in popularity, and eventually, of course, they stopped being held altogether. And it was to be the latter part of the 19th century that saw Baron Pierre de Coubertin, the French historian, a man with vast energy and a belief in education, set up the organisation that was to become the modern Olympic Committee. His inaugural games were held, fittingly, in Athens in 1896. De Coubertin wanted to inspire peace amongst all nations of the world, and to him what better way than an all-encompassing festival of friendly sporting rivalry. Quoted from him, he said, Wars break out because nations misunderstand each other. 
we shall now have no peace until the prejudices which now separate the different races shall have been outlived. To attain this end, what better means than to bring the youth of all countries periodically together for amicable trials of muscular strength and agility? The Olympics went on to become a huge show, even with its own flag. The five Olympic rings, by the way, as you probably know, stand for the five continents of the world, America, Europe, Asia, Africa, and Australasia. And not surprisingly, given his huge energy, it was Pierre de Coubertin that came up with the design. Oddly, it's interesting how many Frenchmen have been responsible for the setting up of major sporting events, the World Cup and the European Cup being prime examples of that. But anyway, we could spend a long time looking at the sporting history of the Olympics since 1886. Every four years there are hidden heroes and villains aplenty. But maybe here we should just take a look at one of the most fascinating games, the ones that took place in 1936, when Nazi Germany hosted the Olympic Festival. For Hitler, this was a wonderful chance to spread an image of a Nazi-run Germany all over the world. And to that end, the German nation followed a strict set of rules to enable the party to put its best foot forward. Extreme anti-Semitic propaganda was temporarily suspended and Jewish shops were allowed to stay open for the time being. As a result of this, many visitors saw this as a very peaceful games and some reporters were impressed with how the Nazi regime organised things. It is true that the Berlin Olympics saw some of the most enduring traditions added to the Olympic experience. For example, in future, athletes would stay in a purpose-built Olympic village, where competitors could train and stay. It was also in 1936 that the form of the opening ceremony took shape, with runners bringing in the Olympic torch from Greece to the host city, which has since become an opening piece of the Games ever since. Much has been written about the way the Nazi leadership saw the Games as a way of selling the superiority of the Aryan race, and as a way of encouraging young Germans for the physical hardships of future conflicts. It was expected that the results of the Blue Ribbon events, such as the track races, would prove to doubters that it was the much-vaunted Aryan race that was indeed worthy of the title the Master Race. As it turned out, things did not go quite as planned for the organisers, as even a cursory look at the old grainy black-and-white footage of the track events of 36 will show. The star on the Berlin Olympic track was, of course, Jesse Owens, the black American athlete who won four gold medals in the 100 and 200 metres sprint, long jump and the 4 by 100 metres relay. His upright running style may look strange today, but it was undeniably effective. Oh, and by the way, we in New Zealand also won the highly prized 1500 metre title, with South Islander Jack Lovelock winning in what was then a world record time of 3 minutes 47.8. It's often been widely written that Hitler refused to meet Owens, and that does seem to be in keeping with his character. Balder von Schirach, the leader of the Hitler Youth, and later to become a feared presence in Austria, claimed that Hitler said after Owens had won the 100 metres title, quotes, the Americans should be ashamed of themselves, letting Negroes win their medals for them. I shall not shake hands with this Negro. Do you really think that I will allow myself to be photographed? 
shaking hands with a Negro. But as it was, the track events were only part of the Games, and in other areas, Germany were much more successful. The final medal table saw them take top spot from the USA, Germany winning a grand total of 89 medals to the Americans' 56. However, it is worth noting that it was not only the Nazi Germans who were openly racist in the way they treated these athletes. Jesse Owens himself noted that the US Olympic team replaced two Jewish members of the squad. The American team managers were sometimes accused of going along with Nazi demands so as not to humiliate them by letting Jews beat them as well as black athletes. This is a difficult thing to prove, of course, but given the way Owens was treated upon his return to the US, it would seem most likely that some of the American management team did indeed harbour discriminatory views. When Jesse Owens set foot back in the States, he attended a celebration in honour of his success, but he was still not allowed to use the front entrance of the venue, but was forced to use the back service entrance because of his skin colour. He was never congratulated by the President, and he never received an invitation to the White House. As he said, quotes, After all those stories about Hitler and his snub, I came back to my native country, and I couldn't ride in the front of the bus, Owen said. I had to go to the back door. I couldn't live where I wanted. Now you tell me, what's the difference? The Berlin Olympics, of course, was not to be the last to be shrouded in political intrigue. At the 1972 Olympics in Munich, Palestinian terrorists famously attacked Israeli athletes in the Olympic village. Eleven Israeli Olympic team members were taken hostage, and in the full glare of international media, they were eventually killed by a pro-Palestinian organisation calling themselves the Black September. And later on, in 1980, some 60 nations chose to boycott the Olympics in Moscow as a way of protesting the Soviet invasion of, the, of Afghanistan. And then a huge example of tit-for-tat, the Soviet Union and many of the Warsaw Pact nations then refused to send teams to the following Olympics to be held in Los Angeles in 1984. Thankfully, the end of the Cold War in around 1990 has seen the most obvious source of political conflict removed from the international scene. But even so, the Olympic Games continue to be a place to make political protests. It is, after all, I suppose, a world event, a major world event. An example of this being during the Beijing Games, where there were protesters arguing for the independence of Tibet from China. The link between politics, dodgy deals and backhanders and the other great world event, the World Cup, has become even more clear in the recent years. And the level of trust in the football ruling elite is now scraping along in the gutter. Hopefully, the Olympic Games will manage to avoid the worst excesses of FIFA corruption. But I am not that hopeful.